government, our children working for the government, dying their children working for the government. But rather, the government started working for us, and for the first time in history, with the creation of nation-states, we had constitution, national law, social welfare, and we began winning square kilometers of space against nature. So the idea and the effort of the Venetian nobility 555, 50 years ago, and the Bilderbergers today has always been to destroy the idea of the nation-state and to create this you could talk about, again, going back to the Middle Ages, where you have the, uh, uh, the oligarchy and the, and the people working for them. So that's how I would describe it, because, again, when you're talking about uh, one-world government, it does sound like you know, a conspiracy, although it really not is a conspiracy if we see what is going on around the world. You, know, you have European Union, you have now the African Union, United States and Canada merging into one the Asian Union is becoming a reality as well. So you have you know, several economic blocks as a penultimate step to joining, fusing all of these together into one. Well, would you then describe it as a class war, uh, the owners against the workers, that type of thing? Well, I think it has always been this. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the owners and the workers, one of the things that... Uh, uh, people like Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, and, and, and Bill Clinton, I've been talking about for so long now, is destroying the United States Constitution. I mean, Clinton called it a document written by extremists, and Brzezinski, in his book, The Tetatronic Age, talked about this class warfare, class future class uh, between the elites and the uh, and the serfs. Uh, so, again, that's not a new thing. And, again, why would these people want to destroy the American Constitution? Because it's the only document in the world, actually, that limits the power of the government. So, yes, but, again, this isn't something new. This is not a new phenomenon. It goes back to the Middle Ages and to the efforts of the nation nobility to destroy the idea of the nation states. And, again, nation states are defined by borders and by independence, something that we in Europe no longer have. You have been investigating the Bilderberg Group for how long? Now, how did you get into this, and how do you go about uh, getting information on these meetings? I've been doing this more uh, on and off since 1992. I got into it when a friend of my grandfather's, my grand, I'm, I'm Russian, I was born in the Soviet Union, my grandfather was a colonel in the KGB counterintelligence, and a friend of his who was a double agent, he was in trouble, was actually trying to get to my grandfather through me, trying to buy time and save himself because he was in some deep trouble because he was found out. I was way over my head. I had no idea what this man was talking about. He talked to me about this, you know, powerful group of people called the Builder something or other. Anyway, I just thought it was all a bunch of nonsense. And uh, as a 19-year-old or 23-year-old kid, I, yeah, I, needless to say, just wrote him off as a nutcase until I started looking a little bit initially into this thing. And my initial impulse to look into these Bilderbergers was I thought, you know, if I get enough, you know, neat stories to tell, you know, I could pick up girls in bars. It was very primary instinct. And then once I got into it, once I started scratching the surface, I realized that there was a lot more truth to it than I've initially imagined. And beginning in 1995, 1996, that's when I became involved more or less full-time, although Bilderberg is not the only thing that I do. I do so many parallel investigations. But Bilderberg is, again, they've won me the, the name and the fame international recognition, you could say, no? And uh, so, again, I've been doing it on and off since 1992, but I've been uh, dedicated to investigating these people more or less on a full-time basis since 1995. 
Now, how do you go about investigating the Bilderberg Group, and how do you get your information about what's going on? Now, these meetings are highly secret. Could you describe the security measures taken and where these meetings take place? Oh, the security measures, if you're talking about security measures for for President of the United States visit, they pale in comparison to what these people go through. The American delegation is protected by the CIA and by the Army Special Division. The British delegation is protected by the MI6. Then you have Mossad protecting two or three Israeli delegates who are there. The rest of the delegates, smaller nations such as Spain, uh, uh, Canada, Greece, etc., you know, they get national security forces, national division of national army, depending on the nation where the meeting is, is being held. The plans of the hotel where the meeting takes place are classified top secret. The access to all the roads around the hotel is closed off. Anybody who comes anywhere near has to show their ID and prove that they belong. Otherwise, they're you know turned around and sent back. For me, it's a it's a it's a real odyssey to get there. Uh, in uh, 2005, uh, flying from Madrid to to Munich for the Rotterdam conference, my flight was diverted to Milan. I was whisked off the plane, uh, interrogated for 10 hours before I was let go. In 2003, in France, I almost didn't make it across the border. In in Stressa. They took my passport away. I didn't think they were going to give it back to me. I was followed and in Germany uh, a couple of years ago in a small hotel where I was staying. It was only at 12 rooms. Six of them were occupied by the Secret Service, three by the German Secret Service, and three by the CIA. So, again, the measures are extreme. I think it's somewhat exaggerated because, again, these people know that they know all about me. They know what I do, uh, and they know that I don't pose any danger, at least physical danger, to these people, although we do have several members of the Bilderberger group who are, you know, annual, and I have to be very careful how I say this, because I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but their lives are in danger if, if they are found out. And several people who belong to the Bilderberger who have been attending these conferences for over a decade uh, regularly pass out the information, because I think they also realize that, you know, what initially they had imagined Bilderberg to be is, is, is a lot more sinister, I don't mean to sound conspiratorial. So are you getting your information about what goes on in the meetings from the actual attendees? Or... Yes, exactly it. That's it. I see. And then what about, tell me about the staff, the staff of the hotels. And also in your book, you mentioned that none of the attendees can have even their personal assistants sit in on the meetings. It's uh, exactly uh, the only people who can act physically attend the meetings themselves are the Bilderberg members, the, the attendees, the assistants, such as David Rockefeller's personal lackey. He has to sit in a room next door. He can have lunch with him the day before the conference begins on a Wednesday, but as of Thursday, he, can, he basically takes him for a walk, uh, but he cannot be present when the meetings take place. Uh, he doesn't go on a boat ride. That's only for the Bilderberger attendees. Uh, I usually get to the place uh, a week before. Uh, it's a five-star hotel, about 40 kilometers from the main city, such as Munich or Milan or, in this case, Ottawa. And uh, I talk to everybody who works there, to all the bellboys, the, you know, the hotel staff, and I explain to them what will take place. I ask them to please not take my word for it, but to please listen to what these people do and they talk about, and if they feel that what they hear can be useful to please get in touch with me. They, a lot of them just write it right off. Others are simply afraid. But we do get a lot of very valuable information from people because one of the advantages of five-star luxury hotels is that all the staff must speak 
at least three or four languages. So as all of the meetings take place in English, uh, with French being second language, there's no problem ever of getting very important information. Again, all that stuff is contrasted against other sources who do not know each other. The several Bilderberger attendees who are my sources, they do not know each other, or they do, but they don't know that they do not realize that they're my sources. So we have a lot of independent ways of confirming the information. And again, my batting average over the last 12 years has been about 900 points, which is fairly good. And uh, I do have a lot of other collaboration from people from the Secret Service community from around the world, not only the uh, the KGB, but it, because it's still called the KGB, although in the West they call it something else. You know, the MI6 people, the CIA people. Uh, because, again, not only within Bilderberg, but within the Secret Service community, there are a lot of wonderful people who understand the grave danger we are in, and they're doing what they can on the inside to try to get this information out. And once they know that they can trust you, the information finds its way into my hands. And needless to say, I'm very grateful to all of these people for their help. So, Danny, uh, tell us what some of the information is that you have gleaned from some of your sources. What are the discussions taking place? What's being talked about? What have you found out lately? Well, um, you know, uh, one of the things lately is one of the things earlier is, again, going back to 1996, when they first discussed uh, the breakup of Canada and the war in Kosovo. Uh, in 1996, we were able to stop them because that information came out, and Canadian press picked it up, and there was no way to stop all the stuff that was coming out about the Bilderberger plans to dismantle Canada and, and merge it with the uh, United States into one nation. Um, they came back 11 years later, and what we have right now is the makings of the North American Union. Again, you know, to bring the point home, last week, coming into Canada from Europe, I was stopped at the Toronto airport by an American private security contractor working for DINCORP, who basically was deciding whether I, as a Canadian citizen, can enter my country on my Canadian passport or not, depending on the answers I gave him. You know, if that doesn't bring it home, I don't know what will. So again, that's one of the things that has been on the agenda over the last few years. The uh, Iraq war, again, that's something we predicted a year before it happened in 2002. I can tell you right now that the Iran war is off the table, although so many people are talking in the mainstream press about the immediacy of the Iran war. I can tell you that the the Russians and the French, who belong to Bilderberg, and then the Chinese, who are not members of Bilderberg, but who are members of the Trilateral Commission, you know, they've taken their gloves off, and they've drawn the proverbial line in the sand around Iran. There's just too much money that these countries have invested in Iran, and they will not let the United States, because, again, the United States is not the United States, but your men behind the curtain who rule and who run the United States, uh, they will not let these people to go, go into Iran. If there is, if they will, you know, we're going to have a major war. And again, I, you know, you can smell blood in the water. And you know, Bonnie, what happens when there's blood in the water? It usually leads to a very good fight. So that's another important issue on the agenda. Last year in Canada, in, in Canada in June 2006, I reported it in my Bilderberg report. Uh, they were very concerned about the collapse, the imminent collapse of the U.S. housing market, which, of course, took place in uh, about March of 2007. And one of the Bilderbergers was saying, what will happen when people with a $500,000 mortgage find out that their home is only worth 100000 bucks?" And basically, this is exactly what is going on right now. So these are some of the, uh, let's say, some of the issues that these people have been talking about over the last uh, year or two.
Now, do you have a sense of who or what makes final decisions? For instance, now that's interesting that you say, and I notice you mentioned that in your book, that the talk at the Bilderberg meeting is, of course, that there is not going to be an attack on Iran. Well, Americans want the war, but the European Bilderberg are saying, you're going to do this alone and you're going to pay for it. So, uh, again, uh, the only other time we had such conflict uh, was in 2002 when they met in, in Virginia when the Europeans were saying, we don't want anything to do with this war, and the Americans were insisting on the war. They finally came to a consensus. The war was put off until February, March 2003 because European members were terrified of the consequences of this uproar in Europe. I mean, just in Spain alone, 15 million people came out and said no to war. You know what could happen if you have hundreds of millions of people across of Europe, across Europe coming out. Any spark could lead to a revolution, and I don't care how powerful these people are. You know, if you have 100 million people against you, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And again, the same thing is going on on the Iran issue. And again, the, the positions have been taken. The Europeans are saying, no way, the Americans won the war. And I'm going to go on the limb and say on your program that there is not going to be a war according to the latest Bilderberg 2007 meeting, which took place in Turkey. Well, that makes sense. However, I thought that there was more support for such an attack in Europe than there was for this uh, invasion of Iraq. Now, what about France? Hasn't the new leader Sarkozy, haven't they been saber-rattling against Iran? Well, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I do in my conferences uh, to help people understand who really runs the show, whether it's Bush, Sarkozy, or, or some other characters whose names and faces we just can't see, I talk about the, uh, this wonderful book called The Wizard of Oz. Now, in The Wizard of Oz, until we find the man behind the curtain, we don't really know how the kingdom is run. Well, this is more or less the same thing. If you want to understand how the Bilderbergers do their stuff, you have to understand and find the men behind the curtain. And Bush, Sarkozy, and Blair, and Chirac of this world, they're just your puppets. But the puppet masters, these are the proverbial men behind the curtain. And the idea of Sarkozy supporting Bush, um, it's a non-issue. Because, I, you know, I, researching my latest book, which just came out in Spain, I was in Sudan and Darfur, which I think is the epicenter of the entire world struggle. And America's principal enemy in Darfur is France. Uh, Russia's is uh, China. You know, the Israelis are firing on the Americans. Every major nation in the world, you know, the Russians, the Americans, the French, the English, the Chinese, the, they're all there, and they're all fighting for the same thing, for oil. And again, you see the wholesale takeover of ex-French colonies by the United States and turning them into English, British, American colonies. That's a good example of, of what I'm saying, that, you know, Sarkozy is only uh, an American ally. That's for the gallery. In real world, in the men behind the curtain world, they are enemies. Yes, that's interesting, and uh, that's interesting about Darfur. I've done some uh, shows on that, and you're absolutely right. They're after the oil, and they want to get in there. Um, 
You know, I think um, a lot of people might not agree, but again, Bilderberg is about money, it's about energy. And when you have no energy to speak of, money ultimately becomes worthless. And I know it's quite a hot subject right now. People are talking about peak oil. Others are saying that, you know, we have plenty of oil. It's just a scam to control the energy reserves in the countries. You know, I think differently. And again, one of the things that uh, Kissinger said four years ago in, in in France, and then repeated the same thing in in, uh, in Stressa in Italy in 2004, he said, you know, we have about 40 years of oil reserves left. And then someone else said, yeah, right, but we only have 20. If you keep in mind that the uh, the Chinese and the Indians are growing 10% a year, and uh, again, uh, if we have 20 years of oil reserves and we haven't found one oil reserve of uh, 500 million barrels, which is only about six days' supply for the world. Uh, it takes about seven years to get from the moment we find oil to the moment we actually get it into our vehicles. We're looking at about a decade left of oil. And again, um, it's about oil or energy, and it's about money. But money loses its value and becomes worthless if you don't have the energy to go along. So that's, I think, is the background to all the wars, terrorism, all the money laundering, drugs, and everything else. Again, it's about money, and it's about energy. Now, you mentioned that as a Canadian citizen, when you landed at the airport in Toronto, you were stopped and interrogated by an employee of Dine Corporation, Dynecor? Well, these were uh, American contractors working for the Canadian government, but contracted through Dine Corporation, or Dine Corporation, as you say it. Uh, and again, so these are the people deciding whether I can enter my country uh, as a Canadian citizen or not. You know, and, and we should ask ourselves why the only journalist in the mainstream press in the United States to actually speak of the North American Union is a guy by the name of Lou Dobbs on CNN. You know what I mean? There's nobody else doing that. What we're seeing right now is a plan which was actually put together about 25 years ago, but which was openly discussed in Toronto in 1996 at their Bilderberger meeting in King City. You mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, some of the attendees at uh, a few of these Bilderberg meetings who have given you information about some of the content of the meetings, that these individuals felt that the world was in grave danger, and that's why they were feeding you information. At least that was one of their reasons. What impressions did you get from these people as to what they felt were the biggest dangers that the world is now facing? I think the biggest danger, according to how they understand the world, is the fact that people don't seem to realize that, uh, you know, we don't live in a democracy that, uh, thanks to our television set and what, the, you know, the mass media, what they have done to us, they've created this illusion of democracy where, in fact, they manipulate us through television set, through the news media, you know, through printed press. And when you take into consideration that every position of power, be it in the banking sector, in the uh, uh, in the industrial sector, in the government sector, in politics or whatnot, all of them are occupied by people who belong rather or to the Bilderbergers or to the Trilateral Commissioners or the CFR, whose loyalties obviously do not lie with democracy and freedom, but whose loyalties lie with the peoples with their, you know, planned goals, the Bilderberger goals for world domination. I think that's the gravest danger because, again, there are two kinds of prisons. There's one prison where you can actually, you're actually inside and you can touch the bars, you know, you're inside. But a far more worse prison, with the prison where you actually can't see the bars, it's an illusion of freedom, but in fact that is only an illusion because everything we do, we think, we walk, we talk, how we speak, how we dress, how we smell, 
that is all controlled and manipulated by very intelligent people from behind the curtain. And I think that's the biggest danger, the fact that we don't seem to understand that the war that these people are waging is not against bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, you know, this traveling circus, as I would say, known as the mullahs of Iran. We are their enemy, and we better understand that, and we better understand it soon, because they will destroy us, and they will annihilate us unless we actually stand up, wake up, and realize it. And that's why you have the mass media entertainment in the United States and everywhere else in the world, so that we don't do too much thinking by getting in the way of important people with our independent thinking. Now, you mentioned the media. Now, earlier on in our conversation, you did say that very high-level broadcasters, media people, attend these meetings. So talk a little bit about the media. Well, in the United States... uh, 262 journalists belong to the CFR. Uh, All the leading Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters belong to the Bilderbergers, and I don't know how many of them belong to the Trilateral Commission. It doesn't really matter because, you know, a a lot of them, it's a cross-section. You know, the more important ones belong, such as Donald Graham, for example, or his mother, Catherine Graham, of the Washington Post. They belong to the Trilaterals, to Bilderberg, to CFR, and God knows to how many other secret private organizations who knows what they do in these things. But uh, let me just give you an example. In 2002, when they met in, uh, in Virginia, uh, they were discussing the, the war in Iraq. They reached a consensus where the Americans and Europeans agreed that they're not going to start the war immediately. They're going to postpone it until February, March 2003. And European Bilderbergers, through their media and through their politicians, will try to pave the public opinion and, and prepare the public opinion for the war. They just needed more time. Now, that 2002 meeting was attended by people like uh, Thomas Friedman, uh, Hoagland, um, William Sapphire. I mean, you're talking about the leading reporters for the New York Times, the Washington Post. Now, if I knew about what these people were talking about, and I was on the outside, obviously, you know, the Sapphires of this world also knew what these people were talking about, because they were on the inside. And if that information, which should have been, you know, the cover story of every newspaper in the country, if not the world, in fact, didn't make it not even to the last page of, you know, of the local rag. Uh, uh, So if that's the case, who do these people work for? They don't obviously represent the United States. They don't work for the people. They don't work for their media outlet, who supposedly tells their readers the truth. They represent the Bilderbergers and their interests. You know what I mean? And this is just an example of just three of the so many of these journalists who belong to this group. We in Spain, we have exactly the same problem. The leading Bilderberger outlet in Spain is called Grupo Prisa, who supplies all the textbooks to most South American countries. You know what I mean? So now you know what these children will be thinking about 20 years from now. Your book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, is full of many, many pages of uh, attendees at the Bilderberg Group. Obviously, these photos were taken of people there. You were just talking about the media. I saw Tom Brokaw's picture there. That's right. Uh, So it's not just uh, columnists who show up on the op-ed pages. It's actual broadcasters. Peter Jennings is a member. You know, it's like anybody who's anybody in the United States media must play along. If you don't play along, you don't get anywhere. And that's how, you know, the, the conspiracy of silence and censorship works. It's about control. 
Right. And do you think that the deindustrialization, say, of the United States, of course, there were many factors that went into that. Do you believe that that was a sought-after goal? Deindustrialization of the United States? Absolutely. You know, about 10 years ago, I came across in one of the CFR reports, the uh, Council of Foreign Relations reports, uh, they were talking about demand destruction. I didn't understand the the phrase until I came across the same phrase about five years later in the Trilateral Commission report and then in the Club of Rome report and then in the Bilderberger report. So I asked a friend of mine who works for the World Bank if he could explain what this demand destruction is all about. And she said to me, you know, if you want to destroy the demand, how would you go about doing it? I said, well, I don't know. How would you do it? He said, by destroying the economy. And when you destroy the economy, people lose their wealth. That's what 1921, you know, stock market collapse was about. David Rockefellers didn't lose their money. It was a transfer of wealth from poor people, from us, to the wealthy individuals, such as Rockefeller, the Morgans, the Rothschilds, you know, etc. So this is, again, if you want to destroy the uh, demand, you destroy the economy. And we're witnessing it right now, not only in the United States, but also in Canada, also in Spain, in France. In Italy, the textile industry was destroyed by the Bilderbergers in Italy when they allowed cheap Chinese trinkets and garments literally unchallenged to go into the Italian market. So people have been in business for generations, if not for centuries, lost absolutely everything. That's not a coincidence. The people who orchestrated that, you know, that destruction were people such as Pascal Lamy, who is, again, the European Trade Commissioner, member of the Bilderberger elite, you know, your consummate insider who has been attending all of these meetings over the last decade or so. Again, you destroy the demand, you destroy the economy, you take the money out of people's hands. When people are poor, they feel subjugated, they feel threatened, they will do whatever they must do to conserve and to keep their jobs. And again, people who are poor don't travel, they don't buy things, they don't use energy, which the Rockefellers of this world feel is theirs and not ours. So this sounds like an anti-prosperity program to get rid of the middle class. Well, this is exa- you just said it. You know, the concept is to get rid of the middle class. And this is exactly what Big New Brzezinski talks about in the Tetatronic Age. He says exactly the same thing. In the near future, we'll have two classes, the servants and the owners. Again, goes back to over 500 years ago, the idea of the pre-nation states when you had the oligarchs, everyone else working the fields, dying, their children working the fields, so on and so forth. And now today we're seeing, again, this is the end game. And people better realize that the war, again, is not against Bin Laden. We are their enemy. I'm speaking with investigator and author Daniel Estulin. Today's show, The Bilderberg Group. Rulers of the World. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you talk a little bit about how NGOs or non-governmental uh, organizations fit into the picture in addition to foundation funding like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie uh, Endowment, etc.? Uh, the NGOs play a very important role in the entire scheme. Because they're NGOs and because they supposedly don't work for the government but represent the poor people, it's a very effective scheme uh, if you want to steal something from somebody. You know, I saw this firsthand in Sudan, in Darfur, where the uh, uh, European governments were working hand-in-hand with the multinational corporations such as BP, Shell, uh, Halliburton is there as well, 
uh, Texaco is there as well. Secret Service agencies are all of them also in Sudan and Darfur. And also all the NGOs are there as well. Again, the point of Sudan is oil. And it's no coincidence that all of these people are there trying to expropriate this oil from the poor Africans who actually live there. Another example, I could talk to you about uh, uh, Greenpeace. Now, uh, the idea is, uh, again, what's behind Greenpeace is attempt to discredit anyone who wants to use nuclear energy. That, again, goes back to the uh, Bilderberger plans to control the world. If you're a poor third world nation and you have nuclear energy at your disposal, it means that you don't need the handouts from the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. Now, uh, if I'm uh, International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, I need to control poor nations. So in exchange for my money, which gives them money to buy energy, um, I have the lands as uh, as a trade-off. Now, uh, uh, I'll give you an example of, of what Greenpeace does. Again, if you think of Greenpeace, the name itself is almost as well known as Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. Now, you know how many billions of dollars Coca-Cola spent on promoting its logo and its trademark. So how is it possible that an organization that is supposedly an NGO, such as Greenpeace, is almost as well known as some of the leading corporations, until you understand that there is another agenda behind their uh, public posturing of trying to save the world. I'll give you an example of what nuclear energy does for you and something that the Greenpeace has been uh, uh, campaigning so much against. Um, if you take any third world nation uh, who needs uh, the handouts from International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, now they need that money in order to buy the energy reserve so they can give food and, and, and heat to their people. In return, as a trade-off, these organizations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, get to keep the country's lands. Now, if you are a third world country such as Gabon, for example, and you have nuclear energy, then you suddenly realize you don't need International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, which means you can strike out on your own. This is what also the war was about between Argentina and Great Britain in something known as the Falklands War, the Malvinas War. See, Argentina was selling nuclear energy, cheap nuclear energy, to Mexico. Now, you can't have that if you're the man behind the curtain, because that will make Mexico a very valid, equal trading partner to the United States. And if you want to have the North American continent and the Mexicans subjugated, it's much better to have Mexicans as third-world cheap labor as having them as equal trading partners with the United States. That's where the Greenpeace comes in. And again, the, uh, the name Greenpeace alone is almost as well-known as Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, or any other corporation in corporate America. Yes, you do mention in your book about how uh, certain of the northern countries or the northern blocks, economic blocks, have used uh, countries in the South as their own sweatshops, basically. Well, if you go back in the history of the United States, uh, America has always been an independent nation, just as the Russians have always been independent. I mean, the only thing that Russians didn't have is bananas and coffee. They, you know, they had everything else. Now, if you want to make a car, you get the body or the engine done in Detroit. You know, you get the body in Canada. You get the wheels in Mexico. You have exactly the same policy, trade policies in Europe. Now, that's not the concept of free enterprise. It is done this way to make sure that no country can strike out on its own and be independent. It's about control. Again, independence is what a nation states is all about. 
And in that vein, you mentioned in your book that the biggest threat to this economic meltdown, these plans, etc., is organized resistance. Well, exactly. Uh, if we can only organize ourselves into some kind of a, a resistance movement, we can really stand up to these people. However, unfortunately, it's very difficult for people to understand how such a small group of people can control six and a half billion people of the planet. Again, uh, what people must understand is that the Bilderbergers don't need to control what each and all of us do or does or thinks. What they need to do is, you know, I'll give an example of a corporation. You take Coca-Cola or the New York Times. Through the president of the corporation, you control what everybody else does, the editorial line, how people think, what they write, their political position, etc. So through one man or one individual, you can control the rest of the organization. This is why it is so easy to control humanity, because the Bilderbergers, they just happen to occupy all the most important positions on the world stage. Danny, could you talk uh, briefly about the two other organizations that you focus on in your book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group? You have a whole section on the Council on Foreign Relations, and then uh, the third section on the Trilateral Commission. Now, the Council on Foreign Relations is a much larger group, and that's a domestic uh, American group. Isn't that right? That's right. The CFR is the American version of the Bilderbergers. There's about 3,000 members, more or less. And the Trilateral Commission, you have 325 members. That membership changes every, uh, every three years. So what I do in the book is I document how every presidential candidate, every position, not only the president of the United States, but also the official candidates for the opposition, as well as members of the independent party, they're all occupied by people who belong to the Council of Foreign Relations. The same thing as far as the CIA directors are concerned, you know, the secretaries of defense, the secretaries of the treasury, the appointees to the uh, United States Supreme Court. All of these people belong to the CFR. Now, if you actually think about it, you have a very powerful group of people whose foundations and whose base occupies all the leading positions in the United States. So when they're talking about, you know, a, a presidential appointment for this judge or that individual or somebody who is a member, or, you know, who is Secretary of Defense, just take it for granted that these people, before they can actually get to their positions, they have been approved by these men behind the curtain. Again, it's not a conspiracy. It's a fact. All of them belong. You know what I mean? It cannot be a coincidence. The human spirit requires that we look for a logical explanation, some model to explain why every presidential candidate over the last 50 years or 60 years has belonged to Bilderberg CFR, the Trilateral Commission, why every Secretary of the Treasury, the Defense, people uh, who belong to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the judges, why all of these old boys and a few girls club will actually belong to the same interlocked Bilderberger CFR and Trilateral Commission compound. And then with regard to the Trilateral Commission, which was uh, started by whom? David Rockefeller in 1973? Now, that includes Asia as well, doesn't it? Trilaterals were started by David Rockefeller in 1973, but it was also started by, by Jimmy Carter and Big New Brzezinski. These are you know, your, your three insiders. These are the three people who actually put the whole thing together. The Trilateral Commission is uh, your Americas, North and South America. It's Europe and it's also Asia, which gives them access to the entire world stage. And again, if you look at the list of some of the Trilateral Commission South American members, they're some of the biggest crooks and thieves and liars in the history of, uh, of the 20th century. You know, people who have destroyed uh, 
Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, you know, Cavallo who destroyed Argentina, and again, all of these people, needless to say, again, they don't work for their country, they don't represent their government, they work for one of these three organizations, you know, your proverbial men behind the curtain. And again, there's a pattern here, the sapphires of this world don't report or represent America's interests, the Donald Grahams of this world don't represent their shareholders' interests. The governments in the United States or Spain or France, they don't represent their national interests. They all work for these secret cabals and conglomerates. And uh, I still fail to understand how a small group of people, 120, 130 of them, can have the same interests at heart as 6 billion very diverse cultures who make up this world we live in right now. Now, uh, what part, if any, did Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski play in the setting up of the Trilateral Commission in 1973? Uh, Rockefeller felt that Carter could project an image of a southern governor that could be used to fool many voters by appearing conservative or moderate while, in fact, favoring the most left-wing of agendas. The idea was to use Jimmy Carter to court both white and black voters who could be delivered by the Democratic Party's big urban political machine. However, what you know truly impressed them wasn't Carter's independence. Rather, what endeared Jimmy Carter to the establishment crowd was his ruthlessness and ambition. Uh, in this 1976 book called Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Gary Allen writes that Carter's overwhelming ambition and corruptibility made him vulnerable. It included conniving him with his own personal banker, Bert Lance, to funnel banks' depositors' money into Carter's peanut business and into the bank accounts of Lance's associates and family members to finance Carter's campaign while waiting for federal matching funds. Now, the illegalities involved were enough to send the whole gang to jail, and the key to exposure was in the hands of David Rockefeller. And, of course, once you have that information, you have the men in your pocket. And needless to say, David Rockefeller and Jimmy Carter worked hand-in-hand throughout Carter's presidential campaign, and then throughout his presidency. Now, why would anyone consider Jimmy Carter left-wing? Because the media made us believe that he was left-wing. Again, it's the media, the corporate media, that makes us believe what we believe, because the opinions we have are not our own. They've been very skillfully you know, inserted into our subconscious by the people who run the media and the men behind the curtain. And to conclude the show... Something of a curiosity, this is from 2014, a range of thoughts, this is a set of clips with musical interlude and some musical backing, I'm afraid. This is from a Turkish television program called Yazboz, with Turkish commentators and Turkish subtitles to the words of Tony Gosling. First of all, it's not just the Israelis, the Americans and the British that have established ISIS. It's really a a NATO operation, I think. And this is where the Turkish military also comes in, because, of course, Turkey is also part of NATO. I think probably right from the very first days when Turkey joined NATO, there was always going to be this problem storing up for the future, where, on the one hand, Turkey is largely Islamic country uh, and also part of this NATO power bloc. There was always going to be problems for Turkey deciding which side is it on. Uh, As for the origins of it, I think you'll find many of the fighters in ISIS are also from Libya and from Syria. So these are uh, Islamist forces, the Islamic fighting group for example, was supported by the British by MI6 many years ago. Uh, and an attempt to kill Colonel Gaddafi, for example. 
and also in Syria, much support was given by Britain and other NATO countries to uh, the Syrian rebels, we call them. Well, we like to call them the rebels, but we were helping to arm them via places like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. So ISIS has not appeared out of nowhere. It's just a new name for an old organisation which was created to fight Colonel Gaddafi and to fight uh, President Assad of Syria. It's just been rebranded. Literally, look at some of the commanders. Many of them have been tortured uh, in American prisons. So these people are actually, I think, part of a, an operation which is much wider than just Israel, US uh, and the UK. The ultimate purpose of ISIS is an interesting one. I think it's a honeypot. This is a kind of uh, a terminology which the intelligence people will use because they know there's lots of disaffected people out there, mostly uh, Islamic people who can see the way that the Islamic world is under attack right now, just as the, the Jewish people were under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. There was a pogrom against the Jews. There's now many people who believe that there's a pogrom against the Islamic world. And in order to fight against that, they believe there needs to be an armed struggle. So ISIS is there to bring those people in. But the thing is, I believe it's still controlled by the NATO powers. Uh, and that's the whole point, is they want to control both sides of the chessboard in the war in the Middle East. As regards the monarchy, it's quite clear the British monarchy are pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist. Uh, their influence is much greater than people realise uh, in Britain. Uh, they have, for example, uh, a lot of say over some key appointments um, in the military world, for example. The Duke of Edinburgh is a field marshal in the British Army, etc. So they have a lot more power than people realise. They also have freedom from freedom of information requests. So when journalists like me try and find out what the royals are up to, they just say, sorry, we can tell you nothing. So there's a lot of secrecy around the royal family. Uh, also, the uh, uh, political side of Zionism is very strong in Britain. You've got Labour Friends of Israel, Conservative Friends of Israel, very powerful lobbying groups, Zionist lobbying groups with lots of money that sponsor candidates, much as they do uh, in the United States. So the Israel lobby, I call it, really not Jewish, because many Jews are abhorred by the um, State of Israel, the way that the State of Israel has treated the Palestinians, for example, broken international law, uh, that kind of thing. There's a lot of Jews that don't like it, but it's a very powerful force in Britain still, in politics, in royalty, and in Freemasonry, the religious cult. Well, for hundreds of years, the Rothschild family has been very important in the City of London. The City of London is a strange uh, institution. Actually, the Queen has to ask permission if she wants to enter the City of London. The Rothschild family is extremely influential in Britain for hundreds of years now. The place where they reside is the City of London, the Rothschild Bank investment firms. The City of London is run almost like an independent state, a state within a state. Even the Queen has to call on the phone and ask permission if she wants to enter the City of London because it's considered to be a challenge to their power if she comes in. Every way you walk into the City of London you will find a red dragon staring at you in the street. Everywhere around the circle, around the outside of the City of London, these dragons are there. Uh, this is an old idea, many people maybe don't even notice it. But the dragon, of course, in biblical terms, symbolises the devil. So what is there about the City of London that might be to do with the dragon? Who knows? So it's a mysterious institution, the city, and the Rothschilds sit really in the centre. They're very powerful in regards to policy making. 
Um, the Central Policy Review staff in Britain was set up uh, in the 1970s. And who was the chair of it? Victor Rothschild. Maybe I'll say another couple of things about the Bilderberg conferences because people may not know them. Uh, this is a secret meeting that takes place through the year and a one big meeting every year. It was set up in 1954 after the Second World War, uh, really f uh, from American big business that wanted to make sure that Europe, nobody in Europe, turned communist. They were very worried that the uh, European countries, particularly Italy and Yugoslavia, were going to become communist countries. Yugoslavia obviously did, although it wasn't part of the Soviet Union, uh, and this was a big worry for the Americans, and also for many rich and powerful people in Europe. They made all sorts of uh, conspiracies about communism, which is a terrible thing, but the fact was they were really worried about losing their industrial empires, because communists, if they saw somebody had too big a monopoly, too much power, they would take that off them and nationalise it. And that meant that the big families would lose their wealth. So really it was a selfish thing to do. And the Bilderberg conferences were set up to make sure that there was no drift in Europe towards the left. And it stayed more in favour of the United States, not of the Soviet Union. And it was very successful, even though it was quite secretive. The Bilderberg conferences I've been studying uh, really since uh, 1996, when I first discovered them. And I can tell you, it's a pretty simple operation. Really, they are uh, the lobby for the NATO countries. They certainly don't control the world, although they would very much like to. And they work very closely with the banking system and the military, most importantly. Also, of course, oil companies. Um, but they're there to, to coordinate the grabbing of more and more resources to themselves. They're an extremely powerful organization. The people that meet at their annual conference, 120 or so, control most of the money in the Western world. There's very little that they don't control. They have in their media too. So, for example, the BBC uh, sent somebody, but they don't actually report on the conference. So they're involved in the discussions, but they don't like to report on the conference. At a national level, you'll find similar organisations to the Bilderberg. Uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, for example, are a very powerful organisation behind the scenes. Um, for example, in law enforcement, in the police, it's well known that many police in Britain join the Freemasons. What's not so well known is the oaths that they swear are blood-curdling oaths. Those oaths are to protect the organisation, the club, the cult, many people say is a cult, a religious cult, against interests of others. So that is, uh, you will never reveal the secrets of the Freemasons, you will never reveal the secret code, the secret handshake. Yes. This is one of the best well-known things about the Masons, is their secret handshake. But essentially what it does is it creates a cult because of those, I say, the reason I say cult is because the oaths that they're swearing are so strong. What they're saying essentially is, if I tell a secret that you don't want me to tell outside the Freemasons, or I tell the secrets of Freemasonry itself, you can kill me. And the rituals explain that. With a dagger to the heart, a noose around the neck, this is all explained in very graphic terms to anyone who enters Freemasonry. If a father initiates his son into Freemasonry, the father may be, well be the one who is actually holding a dagger to the bare chest of his son. A very strange cult. But many people think it's just normal and they try to put a gloss on it. Actually, it's a possibility 
for criminality because of the secrecy involved it enables groups of people to actually get involved in crime now if you think about the involvement of the police as well in a masonic uh, lodge then you can see that there may be collusion within the police and there's many problems for example in london uh, with the uh, expenses scandal we have had evidence that Freemasonry has been used within the police to protect criminals in the phone hacking scandal and also possibly with paedophilia too in the British police and in the British high society. So this is something I think may be a scandal to come out in the future but certainly I think with good probity no organisation should allow anybody to be in any powerful position, certainly in any public position, without declaring whether or not they're a Freemason because then it's all above board. Everyone knows who your associates are. Well, MI6 has been involved in supporting Islamist terrorism really since Operation Cyclone and the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. MI6, uh, through Operation Cyclone, set up a whole jihadi terror network. And really that jihadi terror network has now reached massive proportions in the world. Many of the individual Muslims who get involved in the uh, jihadi networks, um, Islamist networks, don't realise how influential MI6 have been in that. They see it as a big success. I see it as a terrible waste of public money and a waste of human life. Because uh, the MI6 have decided that in order to create conflict, this is one of the best mechanisms. Is if you can control the people who would be your natural opposition. And that is the game MI6 have been playing ever since Operation Cyclone. Uh, it's also worth noting that Roland Dumas, the French Foreign Minister, in 2013 went on French television and he said that during the previous administration, that's the Sarkozy administration in France, the British MI6 had come to see him and said, we want to start an uprising in Syria. Would you like to join us? So there's very strong evidence that the British were behind the uprising in Syria originally. You may think by looking at your television, you may see people come out onto the streets. They look like they're spontaneously coming onto the streets. But many of these organisations are funded through what they call white propaganda. That is to say, money that's coming from the secret services that's going to fund NGOs that ostensibly just want democracy. They want more power to the people, this kind of thing. But many of them are actually funded by the CIA, MI6 and similar organisations. So the next time you see an uprising of people coming out onto the street, you must never assume that it's spontaneous. You must always look at the organisations involved. And this is where Bilderberg comes in too, because at the Bilderberg conference uh, two or three years ago, there was something called the Syrian National Council actually came to Bilderberg. But this was a fake organisation. It had been set up rather like the anti-Castro Cuban organisations back in the 1960s in the United States as a fake government in exile. So. This is what they do, is they set up their own organisations, MI6 do, and the CIA do, that look to represent the real values of the people of Syria or one of these other organisations. Actually, it's all controlled with money from the black budgets, that is, the secret intelligence budgets. So, yes, next time you see a rally on the streets, always ask yourself, now, is this a real one or is this a CIA rally? That's the ultimate end game, I think, 
uh, is with the Israelis because they actually want to create conflict around Israel in order to start to control more and more in the Middle East. So that's why I say it's, uh, Temple Mount is a key place. If you've got conflict, you've got the shock doctrine. Naomi Klein's brilliant book and film, The Shock Doctrine, which means that if you have conflict, you can control the outcome. You can't change things. It's very difficult to change things in times of peace. But if you can create a war, you can control the outcome. I mean, we've seen this, for example, with the big American companies like Kellogg Brown Root coming in and, and rebuilding countries. They're doing this thing, divide and rule. We've been doing it for centuries. So you create chaos and you come in and say, we can bring order, you bring order, and everybody's happy, but it's your order that you're bringing. So it's a very sneaky game. Ultimately, with the Middle East, I think it's pretty clear the expansion of Israel is on the cards. Ever since the 1967 war, we've seen Israelis breaking all the promises that they made uh, with now the big occupied territories. And there is no rule of law ever since 1967 in the world until the international community tells the Israeli government that you must go back to your original borders, that you can't just take land and keep it against international law. What we have is a trickle-down effect of lawlessness throughout the world. And so I think we need to nail that one. But the British, I think, the governments of Britain and the United States actually want to see Israel uh, expanding in the Middle East because really effectively it, it has very little to do with Old Testament Judaism. It's much more to do with modern day big business and Freemasonry. Freemasonry is very big in Israel uh, and so it's in a way an outpost of capitalism in the Middle Eastern world in what is essentially a much more moral world. The Islamic, Islamic uh, morals are very strong, very powerful, and this is a way of smashing them down. I think that's their ultimate agenda, because they want to be able to rule by money and corporations. What happens then is it comes up against moral considerations. Those moral considerations in the West have been overcome. In other words, uh, corporations can do virtually what they want. Money is God. Money is not yet God in the Middle East, and that's what the British MI6, the CIA, the British government, and the American government want. They want their money to be God in the world. They operate in every country on Earth, and I would say actually uh, that Turkey is one of the key countries that they operate in, because the evidence is that it's mostly the Islamic world that uh, uh, MI6 is interested in. And of course, they're also interested in the military and NATO. So I would imagine MI6 has quite a strong presence in Turkey. And if I were a Turkish politician or in the Turkish military, I would be keeping a very close eye on who the uh, British uh, military attaches were, for example, at the embassy, and what a close eye on what they were up to. Uh, because there is a dichotomy between Turkey's membership of NATO and Turkey as an Islamic country, because most of what NATO does nowadays is trying to de demolish the Islamic faith, not just to take Islamic oil, but also to uh, demolish the morals of the Islamic people around the world. So be very careful about the MI6's operations in Turkey, is what I would advise. If I were you, I would be looking at Freemasonry as a vector for a lot of this, because it is a cult and it's a very good way to hide things secretly. So anybody who's traveling to or from Turkey, particularly who speaks Turkish, who is also a Freemason, keep an eye on them. Well, I think uh, no broadcasting corporation in the Western world now really wants to concentrate too much upon problems at home. 
what we've got here in Britain are massive scandals. I mean, for example, we now have hard evidence of murder and paedophile rings involving Buckingham Palace, the royal family and the Conservative Party. The last thing that the British government wants to have on its agenda around the cabinet table is this. Actually, uh, problems abroad, wars, this kind of thing, what it does is it really just diverts the attention of the population away from the problems at home. The government's job is to look after the problems at home. The Home Office, we call it here. Theresa May is our Home Secretary, but she's not dealing with the big problems that there are with criminality and child abuse going on or having gone on historically within the Conservative Party and in Whitehall, that is within the civil service. Um, criminals being protected in all sorts of different ways. So it's a very convenient thing to talk about Turkey or anywhere else where you're not actually looking at the real problems on your own doorstep. They're too afraid of the politicians. I've heard people talking about the BBC as really made up of cowards and control freaks. So there's very little real good creativity coming out of the BBC now. George Soros is a very interesting character. He is a regular attender at the Bilderberg conferences, which I've studied, which is where much of the wealth of the Western world is controlled. And this is a secret meeting, so he's part of this, if you want, cult, a small group of individuals that have immense wealth and power. The danger is, nowadays, that some of those people at those conferences, like Soros, stand to gain financially as other people suffer. I'll explain what I mean. For example, with the gambling, the casino economy, with derivatives and futures markets, you can bet on, say, the price of grain, the price of flour, basic foodstuffs going up or down. And then, potentially, you could influence that price. So, if there's great suffering in the world, and people don't have enough to eat, you could be making money from that. That's the crazy situation we've created for ourselves. And George Soros is one of those gamblers at the International Casino. It's quite clear that Britain sees Turkey as a useful ally in the Middle East. For example, Interlik Air Base, a great place to jump off if you want to uh, go somewhere. It's really uh, using Turkey as an airstrip. <laughs> it's a big airstrip for British fighters, American jets, this kind of thing. But the most important thing about Turkey is it's an Islamic country. And so the British government, and particularly the Secret Service, see it as a perfect jumping off point to get involved in Islamic terrorism. And I think that there is uh, a lot of training, for example, of the Turkish military goes on right here in Britain. Sandhurst is the military training college for the army officers. Many Turkish officers will be trained over here in Britain and then they'll be sent back to Turkey. But will they be working for the Turkish interest, for the Islamic interest, or will they be working for the British interest? Because they may not be the same. This and all previous episodes are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. I'm still looking for volunteers for next week's show on Operation Gladio. If you're a clear reader of English, whether or not you have a foreign accent, doesn't matter. If you'd like to take part, you can email me unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net. Another break.